Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 6, The Madhouse. Day after day, it goes on. We have now flown five of our best pilots and only one has returned safely with his plane. Ken has been killed and other pilots are in hospital. Without our CO, I am very much aware of the responsibilities that go with the rank tabs on my shoulders. I step down from the entrance to our Naxar palace, and following a path quietly beside the church, I emerge onto a wide expanse of grass. I walk in silence, for I am alone. I am festooned with equipment. Suspended from my shoulder by a long strap is my small blue canvas bag containing my sketching and writing things, for I propose to paint if I get the chance. Fastened upon it, my tin hat bangs awkwardly against my left hip. My heavy service revolver, slung in its holster, bruises my right. 
I'm wearing my round blue officer's hat, a well-battered friendly old hat with a kink in front, by which I always recognise it. Its peak extending ahead of me like a huge black eyelid frames the silent landscape into which I'm walking. Stone walls glaring white in the sun recede over the shallow summit of the hill to my left. On my right, any view is cut off by the plain and angular outbuildings at the back of the church and by the high-shadowed wall that extends straight out across the grass. Following the wall, I can now see hill slopes dropping gently ahead of me towards Valletta. They are covered by a lacework of walls with here and there strange square buildings rising from the corners of the fields. There is a similar building on my own hilltop, just beyond some stunted olive trees, with my path curving through a break in the wall towards it. I arrive at the foot of this tall rectangle, standing up on end, without any windows. I am facing its old doors against which the path stops. These double doors were once painted blue, the blue having cracked in the heat and faded to a pale and dusty turquoise, but alas, they are both locked. I peer through the spaces by the hinges, but it's too dark inside to see what these structures are for. Perhaps they are stores for farm implements, or perhaps grain is kept in them after the harvest. Standing back, I survey the deserted landscape again, for this place commands fine views over the whole island. First the view eastwards towards Valletta. Beyond the swaying yellow of descending wheat fields and over the top of the heaped white towns of Misida and Hamrum, a line of hills thrust sharply into the Mediterranean about four miles away. The hills are tinsel violet with distance, encrusted with the Valletta buildings and almost encircled by the blue waters of Grand Harbour. Ships must once have sailed those peaceful waters with slow and measured dignity, but now the ships over there are wrecked, twisted and gutted by bombing. By turning round, I find I am standing on the brink of a field that plunges almost vertically for hundreds of feet to the south. I look across a few wheat stalks into a vast blue bowl of air. Immediately below me there's a walled town, while from behind it the central valley of Malta recedes towards other hills. About four miles away is the splendid profile of Medina, perched high on its spur of white rock. I can see the bastion walls, the pinnacles of St Paul's Church, and even the Citadel Palace where we listen to the AOC's talk. Below that hill crest is Takali Aerodrome, very flat like a sandy-coloured billiard table. And there's the madhouse, like a bent nail close to the ribbon road. To the left of Medina, the other side of a rocky defile, I can see the flat escarpment of hills upon which our own aerodrome of Luca stands, while away to the right I can follow the humpy-bumpy hilltops, turning round to my right until I'm facing back towards the Naxar buildings which frame the view of the west. This, then, is the place where, quite alone, I try to relax. By removing my equipment and my RAF hat, I feel happily civilian. I stretch myself out on a grassy bank. I feel the heat of the sun on my face and on my bare arms where my sleeves are rolled up. It's difficult to believe that I'm rooted onto this hillside in time, just after half past eleven in the morning of Saturday, April the 25th, with little less than 40 minutes before the Germans come back again. I close my eyes. I am enveloped in a world of luminous orange-pink. This is the sensation of my childhood. It has been the sensation of any human being for thousands of years, and will be so for thousands of years to come. The CO must have felt like this. Stone and Bronze Age man must have stretched himself out like this when Hal Tarxian, Hal Safleni and other ancient Maltese temples and tombs were being cut into the rock of this very landscape. Legend records that this is the island of Ogygia, where the immortal sea nymph Calypso dwelt in her cavern. When Odysseus was cast here by the ocean, she promised him immortality if only he would stay with her, but he struggled for seven years before he finally escaped. Escaped? No escape for us. I wonder what brutal facts the Odysseus enshrines. Was Calypso some earth goddess to whom Odysseus was going to be sacrificed? Were the wiles he struggled against, the arguments and persuasions of her priests, as priests in our sister island of Crete may have persuaded men and women to be voluntary and thus more efficacious sacrifices to the Minotaur? 
I can feel the processional aura of ancient ceremonial here. Perhaps there is a temple carved into the bowels of the rock close to this spot. I feel the barrier of time is flimsy, although it is strong. How strange it would be to find myself suddenly beneath the surface of time and walking these ancient hills as Annie Mobley walked in the gardens of Versailles. It is silent here, but with my hand cushioning my head, I can hear my wristwatch ticking inevitably forward. But what of the past, the immediate past, and beyond it the ancient past? I can hear the rustling of leaves and the hot wind moaning and buffeting over the rocks. Homer recalls that Calypso's cave was sheltered by a verdant copse of alders, aspens and fragrant cypresses, which was the roosting place of feathered creatures, horned owls and falcons and garrulous chuffs, birds of the coast whose daily business takes them down to the sea. Trailing round the mouth of the cavern, a garden vine ran riot with great bunches of wild grapes, while from four separate but neighbouring springs four crystal rivulets were trained to run this way and that, and in soft meadows on either side the iris and the parsley flourished. It was indeed a spot where even an immortal visitor might pause and gaze in wonder and delight. Odysseus was not in the cave. Prevented from returning to the home and wife he longed for, he was sitting in his accustomed place, tormenting himself with tears and sighs and heartache and looking out across the barren sea with streaming eyes. Will I ever see my wife again? Desperately, I long for a letter from home. Yet several other pilots have had mail, and this means Diana's first letter must nearly have reached me. I smile into the singing silence becalming the hilltop. It is one of those exquisite silences between raids. Although above me is the undisturbed blue, the sky is generally full of bursting shells, diving and wheeling bombers, rising bomb clouds and drifting dust while the 109s blacken the air like bees. I've watched raid after raid from here, with aircraft from both sides falling in flames, or just falling, looking quite undamaged until they erupt in black fire in the yellow fields. I've been on the business end of the bombs too, on the aerodromes, and I am full of admiration for the airmen who are permanently there, while we, when we are not on duty, can withdraw a little from the main targets. Yesterday morning, for instance, when the camp alarm sounded, two airmen fussed me between some trees and into the private slit trench that they had dug four or five feet deep into the solid rock. There was a third airman bending down and loading his rifle into some corrugated iron that overhung the end of the trench. His two companions introduced him as Ginger, stating proudly that he had the best score of them all. This leader of the three musketeers had apparently shot down four 109s with his rifle, the others claiming two and one respectively. I felt intimidated as I stared at him, for with all my elaborate training I have only destroyed three enemy planes so far. The German dive bombers took me by surprise. I saw them suddenly, 20 88s, high above the treetops, with more appearing steadily from behind the branches, pockmarked by anti-aircraft fire, poised there, noses lifted, about to strike. Ginger grabbed his rifle. Come on down, you great big broody ends, he called. You'll never fly again if you come too near Ginger. Ginger was wearing nothing but his khaki shorts, his shoes and his tin hat. His nude back was arched and twisted as he yelled upwards. His body was not strong like a Mestrovich, heavy like a Michelangelo, or refined as the Greek. Its subtle slightness could be described as transfigured office English. But the Germans must have seen him, for they didn't bomb us. They continued straight on and dived steeply on Takali instead. I felt quite disappointed as I stood in the trench watching the distant bomb bursts rise slowly over our looker skyline, for I would have liked to have seen Ginger in action. A sudden rush of air, a hundred bombs plunged upon us from a second wave of German planes. I crouched in the hole as the shrill noise of tearing metal went on and on and on. The boulders, stones and pieces of bomb casing thumped back from the sky as I uncoiled myself and stood upright. Ginger, rifle in hand, was prowling around like a dark ghost, searching for aircraft. Black smoke swirled overhead and dust was drifting through the branches of the torn trees.
but the Germans had gone. Unlike city bombing, when every missile wreaks terrible havoc, there's nothing much left to knock down on our Malta aerodromes. People at home may think that the two JU-88s, which crashed fairly close to us on this particular raid, was a heavy price for the enemy to pay for destroying a petrol bowser and putting splinters through a couple of spitfires. The bowser, however, was our last bowser, and this means that not only will the airmen have to refuel our spitfires, which swallow 90 gallons each, by hand from 5-gallon drums, but also the transit aircraft that call in at Lucca during their nearly 2,000-mile night flight between Gibraltar and Egypt. These transit planes, consuming thousands of gallons between them, will have to be refuelled by the airmen by hand in darkness, with a continuous patrol of enemy aircraft dropping flares and high explosives. Bomb splinters through a couple of spitfires may sound simple enough to repair, well, One of them, for instance, had a great hole blown through the fuselage just forward of the tailplane and all the control cables and pulley blocks were carried away. We have no spare parts here. They went to the bottom with the merchant ships that failed to reach us in the last abortive convoy. So Chiefy, who mothers our planes, has to search amongst other wrecked fighters to find serviceable pieces, then rob Peter to pay Paul. And it takes time. A grounded Spitfire may be knocked out again before it's ready to fly. I could make a huge list of the things we're up against, but neglect in England is particularly bitter. The new Spitfires we brought with us, guns not properly harmonised, cannon designed faulty, even batteries half-charged. Take the batteries, all our charging sets have been destroyed in the bombing, and although Chiefy has invented a ropey device to do the job, there's precious little paraffin left to run it, etc, etc, etc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Then add the fact that the airmen have never worked on Spitfires before. They were trained to service bombers and all the bombers are destroyed. This then is the background to our real job of flying, but there are not enough planes for the two squadrons of pilots stationed at Lucca. 126 Squadron has the planes from lunchtime one day till lunchtime the next, then we have them for 24 hours. But there are not even enough planes in a flyable condition to occupy half a squadron. I've organised our operations by flights. We're alternately on duty from dawn for the morning one day, an afternoon period the next, then have two days off before flying again. This time off gives me a chance to paint. Indeed, I should be painting now. Looking out over the valley towards Tikali, staring down at the walled town beneath my feet, a golden town with a domed church and stone walls behind it, foreshortening away in the distance, a golden landscape shimmering with heat. I can hear the nagging artist within me, Work, 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 it tells me. You may not have long to live. Why can't I be like other people and relax? Why should I feel that creative work is the only valid reason for my existence? If this is the so-called artistic temperament, it's ironical that I'm not much good at drawing yet, that I'm an immature and interrupted student with no style in my work and no clear idea of what I want to achieve with it. If I did clever caricatures, my companion pilots would think I was a hell of a guy. But instead, although they probably respect me as their flight commander, my lust for art is a subject for merriment. Artists just aren't wanted in war. Even in peacetime, they're treated as some kind of freak. In fact, it's probably true to say that I'm shown more respect in any one day as an officer in the RAF than I'm likely to receive in a lifetime as a painter. 
and I enjoy being needed. I feel my heart warm to the funny little Maltese children who often crowd around me in the street crying out, Speedfire pilot, Speedfire pilot, Speedfire pilot. Some inner demon forces me to go on drawing despite the war. I have to put up with the disappointments and utter misery of pictures continually going wrong as an act of faith that one day. I might acquire such skill and experience as will enable them to go right. At times in the past, I've been given a taste of rightness, and when this has happened, I've felt caught up in a strange rhythm, a kind of ecstasy, the primitive but highly civilised joy that the Chinese called Tao. Although I have only had fleeting experiences of it, I firmly believe that an artist, whether he paints, sculpts, creates music, poetry or any other art, could he but stay in harmony with the Tao from the beginning of his work to the end, the result would show the rhythmic inevitability of every part and be a masterpiece. It's a wonderful adventure to be caught up in this rhythm, but alas, it's out of gear with mechanical civilization. I should be painting now. The fact that I painted the harbour from this hilltop a few days ago does not ease my restless shame about sitting here, so idly waiting for the next raid. To get a good view of the harbour, I had to walk out through the growing corn because the pathway ends at the strange tower just behind me. As the crops are very precious to the Maltese, I walked along the top of the wall with the loose rocks wobbling and clonking under my feet. Finally, I sat astride the wall, painting my picture, listening to the Maltese singing in the distant streets of Naxar. The sun shone brilliantly and all was peace. Then the sirens sounded. 109 sprinting across the sky made me feel anxious about such an exposed position. Timidly, I was wondering if I should retreat, but the artist inside me said no. Bombs crashed down onto Carly on my right, while another stick of bombs bursting behind me made me blot my painting in the wrong place. Bomb smoke mounted higher over my head from Naxar, and in the stunned silence, for the singing in the streets had stopped, there was a strange noise. Sis, 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 sis. I looked up at the third wave of enemy bombers droning immediately above me. I thought they were dropping some secret weapon. Sis, sis, cling. A jagged lump of shrapnel struck the wall just ahead of me. Other pieces were slithering into the field, so I put on my tin hat. I was angry with the enemy and angry with my own utter incompetence to capture the sunlit beauty of the fields with the flat Mediterranean beyond. The painting looked dull. At that moment, all the way across the hillcrest inland from the harbour, a line of black pillared destruction sprang skywards. I attacked my picture with renewed zest. JDO 88s in twos and fours were hurling themselves down from above my left shoulder, releasing their bombs and disappearing behind the smoke in the distance. I had to work fast. With the tip of my paintbrush, I wanted to catch the character of some of these planes as they streamed past. I watched the next pair. Each plane had a long straight fuselage with a tadpole cockpit in front and a tall single rudder behind, while from its wings two engines close to the cockpit protruded well forward. I watched the bombs leave the racks of the leading plane, and at that moment, and I assume that an ascending shell hit the bomb load, there was a splitting bang. I was blown off the wall with my painting things scattered in all directions. I lay on my back amongst the corn, watching a stationary bubble of fire expand wider and wider in the sky just above me. It turned grey at the edges and disappeared. It was as if the whole plane had been vaporised. I lay there watching other bombers sweep towards the target. That was the raid during which poor Ken was killed. Although I counted 164 enemy planes on this side of the island, I saw nothing of the three Spitfires we had airborne. Apparently, Ken made the same mistake as the CO and I. He chased the enemy bombers for a fraction of a second too long out to sea. He almost certainly destroyed two of them before he was cut off by the hosts of 109s. There seems to be no escape from the 109s. The CO was cut off and outnumbered 20 or 30 to 1. Although we all thought he had been killed on that first flight, he was in fact saved by the thin fingers of destiny or chance. Although his plane, having been hit by enemy bullets and shells, was uncontrollable, he managed to bail out by parachute. 
Either his parachute was faulty or it had been ripped by bullets because he fell through it. Luckily, he was caught up by his ankle, being lowered headfirst down the sky and into the sea. He disentangled himself, inflated his dinghy and climbed in. He was lucky again, for the 109s diving down towards him as he sat there did not open up with machine guns, as I am told is their usual practice, but were content to have a good look at their victim instead. It took the CO six hours to paddle his way back to Malta, but finally, when he was utterly exhausted, he was confronted by the cliffs that rose vertically from the sea for hundreds of feet. He used up his remaining strength paddling out away from the cliffs, trying to prevent himself from being thrown against the rocks by the breakers. There came a time where he drifted towards a small bay where, unknown to him, the underwater barbed wire defences had already torn two pilots to pieces. The waves flung him ashore, dragged him back and flung him ashore again. He must have been washed right over the wire. He clung to a rock but had no strength to stop his head being pounded and pounded against it. By chance, a leading seaman, who happened to be passing along the clifftop, saw him and, climbing straight down, dragged him up onto the beach. As a final gesture, one of the 88s, which were dive-bombing Halfar at the time, dropped a bomb on the cliff brink and both men were showered with boulders. This, then, is the kind of air warfare into which I must lead my boys. With the CO in hospital, after which he will be recuperating at the pilot's rest camp in St Paul's Bay, with the dreaded Hugh already ill with a kind of dysentery called the Malta Dog, which may send into a hospital any day, I am virtually in charge. It seems to me that if we leaders are going to be shot down, killed or wounded, there must be other pilots trained as leaders to take our place. This means I should fly such potential leaders as Max, Scotty and Pancho much more than the others. On the other hand, I must get all my pilots, many of whom have never been on operations before, into the air as soon as I can. Too long a delay in watching this kind of battle could have a grisly effect on morale. An additional problem I have to face is that we're not allowed to fly the line astern formation that we used over France and which we have practised. We've been ordered to fly the new line abreast formation, which is quite different. We've never tried this before, but we are to fly our Spitfire straight and level without weaving and abreast of each other in a line. Each pilot looks out sideways, watching the sky in front, above, below and particularly behind his companion, guarding against surprise attack. The method of turning when the machines cross over one another and the emergency brakes need practice. But we can't practice. Every flight is into action. Because we've got to become brilliant at our job before even going up into the air, we gather by the Naxar wall to watch the raids. Oh God, the 109s. They have complete mastery in our sky. They seem to fly on a great staircase or net designed to catch us. First, quite low down a pair or four. Just behind them, another pair, a little higher. And so on, up to 30,000 feet. Mix it with the 109s at low level and they can call 20 or 30 of their friends down to outnumber you drastically within a few seconds. We can never be on top of them, for we are only sent off at the last moment to attack the bombers. The 109 net tries to stop all interception, but if we do get through, there are additional 109s that dive with their bomber formations. Even if we get amongst the bombers to do our job, then the whole 109 force is called in to destroy us. This is the moment we have our losses. How are we to escape from them? I just don't know. Each raid I watch, and I watch for I'm trying to think out some logical advice, some sound factual hope of survival which I can give my boys, and with which I can overcome my own dread of going into the sky again. I'm sitting here on this hillside. Why is this morning raid late? I throw myself back on the ground and look up at the sky. Although I have to screw up my eyes against the glare of the sun, I can see high above me a flat white island of cirrus cloud floating quietly against the blue. I feel the muscles deep inside my body trying to relax. I stare up at the island of cloud. Strange, but if I was flying up there looking down, this island of Malta would look very much the same. But, oh God, I am flying again this afternoon. Still no sirens. I'll not stay here with fear burning all my courage to ashes. I'll walk back along the wall and wait for the Huns in our usual place. 
As I approach, I recognise Pip, one of the B-flight pilots. I don't know him very well, but his thin figure looks fragile and alone. The raid's late, I remark. Yes. He looks palely haunted. His lips smile at me, but his eyes stare. I sense that somewhere inside he's trying to put a blanket over his feelings, just as I am. He's standing quite motionless, and he hasn't had a very good shave this morning. I think he's terrified, but if I am mistaken, I don't want to sow the seeds of fear in his mind. I don't see much of beef like these days. I hear that you're all riddled with the dog, I lie, for I haven't heard any such thing. Only Hugh insists on remaining nominally in charge of beef like is ill, but I must say something to the man. Have you caught the dog yet, I ask. He shakes his head. Have you had a crack at the hun yet? He stares at the ground and seems to be biting his lips. What's the matter, laddie? He remains silent. If you feel scared, don't be worried about it. We all feel the same. Do you really? He asks incredulously. Of course we do. We're all human. We're not fanatics like the Nazis, and that's why we'll beat them. I tap my forehead with my finger. We have more up here to beat them with. He's smiling gently now. His eyes are relaxing a little. The sirens have started to wail. I would like to go deeper into Pip's feelings. Has he a faith to hang on to when everything is stripped away? Does he believe in God? But the other pilots are emerging from beside the church and coming along the path towards us. We are all assembled, Pancho, Max, Scotty and Quiet Cyril, with the rest of my boys in another group to my right. Behind them, further along the wall, the dreaded Hugh is talking to B-flight pilots. Pip is leaning forward attentively from the edge of that bunch. The sky, except for my cirrus cloud which has moved away towards the east, is an uninterrupted blue slightly reddened by haze. There go some 109s, difficult to see, sweeping inland and judging from the roar of their engines. The rest of the staircase is passing above us. Over the other side of Naxar Church there's some bursting flak. The rumble of engines grows louder. Gun crashes more lively, reddish shapes looming through the haze. Ju-87 stukas gathering above us. As the shells burst among them, the formation moves slowly but steadily towards Grand Harbour. That's bad shooting. Five new bursts well away to one side behind the formation. But no, I'm wrong. It's another formation. Ju-88s this time passing obliquely behind the first. There go the Stukas diving down faster and faster, with small slender shapes diving amongst them. 109s, with more 109s appearing from nowhere and joining the cascade of dropping planes. The harbour barrage has opened up. Puffs of pale smoke writhe in the sky, ineffective in stopping the bomb bursts all over the city. Looker is being bombed too. Snap, crack, sharp and loud, set my ears singing. Two bombs, heaven knows where from, have burst a few hundred yards behind us on our hilltop. Lots of dust and small stones raining down, but it's quieter now. Sudden noise of bomber engines from a new direction. Takali bursts apart like a volcano. Bomb clouds leaping skywards. Ju-88s pulling out of their dive sweep low towards us. Three, four, six race above our heads away to the north, but the seventh plane plunging towards us is on fire. Smoke is coming out of his port engine. Black pieces are falling off him. There's a groan of disappointment for the flame is going out. The enemy bomber passes above us. It's back on an even keel, looking quite normal, but we all swing round to watch. He's doing a slight turn to the left. He is on fire, after all. A tiny flame in his port engine is growing rapidly bigger. The engine is all white and dazzling, with fire quickly spreading. The whole bomber is a glistening white pearl with the wingtips and tail sticking out of it black, but it's still flying, doing a slow, flat turn to the left. It's beginning to drop. It's going down. It's disappeared steeply behind the hill. Where have I seen a burning aircraft just like that before? It was long, long ago. A toy glider from my studio steps. I'm suddenly ashamed. I've never thought for a moment of the poor devils inside. How desperately they must have hoped as the fire went out and how they must have watched with horror from their cockpit windows as the fire, rekindling itself, spread like quicksilver. 
The raid is as good as over. The bombs have gone, but there's a spitfire about 800 feet above us, just out over the edge of the valley, doing lazy turns in the air. I wonder if he shot down the 88. This graceful shape, indulging the sheer joy of quiet flying, floats along our hillside like a seagull, while somewhere in the town below us a clock is chiming the hours of midday. A howl of engines, razor-edged, sharp-angled fighters, hurtle from behind the tree clumps. The nearest, leaping to the Spitfire, sends out ghostly blue fingers. The Spitfire's hit. With a bubbling plume of white smoke pouring from its engine, it plunges towards us, turning on a wingtip steeply into the valley below. Thought it was going to crash, but there it goes, trailing smoke into the distance, towards the aerodrome. Difficult to pick out the Spitfire, because there are four Spits, like tiny model aeroplanes, circling Takali. Yes, there it is, approaching the drome, with its shadow racing along the flat ground. It's going too fast, overshooting into the walls. It lifts. It's doing a violently steep turn back. It'll make the aerodrome yet. As it passes more slowly over the perimeter track, a burst of dust shoots up. We wait anxiously as the dust begins to drift away. The motionless wreckage is now revealed, but there's no movement from the cockpit. We wait and wait. At last, the pilot, a minute black dot, climbs out onto the wing and moves away like an insect. That shook him, says Pancho in a low voice. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US. But for that, you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.